Good morning, friends. How are you guys? My name is Dylan Meyer. I'm the youth pastor here. And it's just been a week. Um, and so if you guys wouldn't mind, last week we, we spent the whole service moving through prayer, focused on, on one word, selah, which is the Hebrew word for pause. And I, I could use a pause right now. So if you guys could find a posture that's comfortable for you, not like sleepy comfortable, but like, you know what I mean. And now I, ju I just, I want you to stop. I want you to stop thinking about everything that happened yesterday. I want you to stop thinking about everything that was going on this week. I want you to stop thinking about everything that still has to happen today. I want you to stop thinking about Monday. I want you to be right here. Now I want you to take a deep breath in. I want you to breathe in until you can feel the air hit you in the bottom of the lungs. And then exhale. And exhale. One more. And exhale. And now I want you to look, not at the things around you, but what's going on in your life. I want, I want you to look at your heart. I want you to consider where are you at right now? What has been going on? What is the chaos that's swirling around you? What is the thing that is first and foremost on your mind? What is something that's distracting you? What is something that you need the most? Now I want you to ask. I want you to ask God what it is that's on your heart. I want you to ask that he would intervene in only a way that he can. That he would stand in the gap that only he is able to fill. I want you to ask that he would speak to you clearly what he has for you today. And now I want you to hear. I want you to hear what he has for you. I'm really excited about this series that we're jumping into. Because I think there's, there's lots of cultures that are flying around, but I think we'd be better off if we had a Jesus culture, amen? And uh, this is, when I, when, we were spending time crafting this and creating this. Basically what we're doing is, is we're gonna journey through Paul's life with him. So it was a Paul, the New Testament apostle, um, wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Um, he went on three missionary journeys. We're gonna exclude um, his voyage to Rome. Um, not because it's not important, but just, you know, humorous. Um, and, and 
on each of these journeys, he encountered all different kinds of people in all different kinds of places, and, and he ran into all different kinds of problems, and yet his, his message, his answer, his solution was always the same. You see, there was many things going on, and he addressed every one of those problems, but always with the same solution. Lots of cultures, but just one Jesus. And, and I get this, and it sinks deep into my soul because my soul is sometimes focused on my belly. And I love beef. I love beef. Raise your hand if you love beef. Okay? I, I love steak. I love burgers. That's like, that's your American culture kind of stuff right there, right? Um, but I also, I love tacos. Beef tacos, enchiladas. Oh my goodness. And, and there's just, there's so many different ways, depending on what culture you're in or maybe just what your style is, that you can prepare a cow. But man, they are all just good. And they are all beef. It doesn't matter how you spin it, what you put on top of it, the nature of what it is, is truly what it is. It is beef. Go ahead, tell Burger King the Impossible Whopper is not a Whopper, okay? <laughs> and, and that's what we're going to focus on today, is, is we're going to set the stage for Paul's journeys, because as he moves through all of these cultures and deals with all of these different things, preaching just one beautiful message, that God is real and Jesus is alive. But to get to Paul, we have to start somewhere else because before Paul was Saul. And although they're completely unrecognizable when you put them next to each other, they are the same person. And, and so Paul's journey, his story starts as Saul. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 today, but I want to give you just a little bit of background of where we're at and where we're jumping into. You see, Jesus has already been. He has already been here. He has lived his, his life. He has done his, his years of ministry here on earth in flesh. He has died. He has resurrected and now he has ascended. And so in the wake of all of this, the church is just now starting to find its footing. The disciples now become apostles, are just starting to get a hold of what this Jesus movement is that they begin to call the way. And in the midst of all of this is Saul. Saul is a Pharisee. He is a religious leader in, in, in the Jewish church, and he is a dang good one, if he would tell you himself. He is well studied. He studied, studied under the best teacher at the time, Gamaliel. He was the prized pupil. He was the guy, okay? He knew the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. He would have been required through that teaching to, to memorize giant chunks of scripture and to place them on his heart. And he was a religious man to the max. He would have been well acquainted with, with Jewish tradition and, and the rites and rituals that went on within the synagogue and, and all of the disciplines and things that they would have done in the Jewish faith. He would have been an expert on those things. He knew so much about God. He knew so much. 
he was so religious. Yet when we jump into Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, But Saul, the religious guy, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see, he knew so much about God. He knew so much about the law. And, and that was the foundation of everything that he believed was the law that Moses wrote, God wrote. Moses grabbed it, though. There, there's a joke for you late, later is that um, Moses was the first one to download data from the cloud to a tablet. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm here all week. Um, that was the foundation of everything that he believed. And so when he encountered this Christian movement, the way, these people professing Christ as Lord, he's disgusted because that doesn't fit within his parameters of what he knows about God. And so he attacks them. He imprisons them. He destroys them. He murders them. And it, it begs the question, how does someone that knows so much about God hate his people so much? And that question makes my skin crawl because I don't think that's just an Acts chapter 9 kind of a problem. I don't think that's just a historical church culture problem. I think it's a contemporary problem. I think that's a problem that we deal with now. And I'm going to ask a dangerous question. How many of you guys have heard of church hurt? Go ahead and raise your hand. Or, or religious trauma. How many of you have experienced church hurt? You see, when, when I was in high school, one of the key things that made me make decisions to, to pursue a life of ministry was church hurt. See, I experienced that. My family and I experienced that. And I, I longed so much for the church to be some, something somewhere that we could belong. And I wondered, what would it be like if someone spent their life in pursuit of doing that right, to, to pursuing Christ and, and loving not only him, but his people well. And, and that was a passion of mine that drove me to ministry. And this, all of my studies realistically were founded on this one thing. I desire above all things to do his will his way. But the ugly truth is not only have I experienced church hurt, but the longer I look at myself, the more I wear I become that I have also hurt others in my attempt to be the church well. And so I have been on both sides of this coin, and both of them frighten me. 
You see, because the best, worst thing about the church is the people. You see, because the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means called out ones. And, and that's what the church is designed to be, is to be the people called out to be one body with Christ as the head. But the ugly truth is sometimes the body has lost its head. You see, sometimes the church has, has lost contact with Christ as the head, and, and the body, without a brain, does ridiculous things. All the farm kids right now are thinking of a chicken. Mm -hmm. The lack of reason, the lack of logic, the lack of care is insane. People who know about God, but haven't known him. You see, sometimes we find ourselves in this situation. I'm gonna paint a dramatic picture but there's reason for that. You see, when I think of this, when I think of how the, the bride of Christ has been tainted and drugged through the mud in ways that I don't think are true and or right, things like this come to mind when we judge and condemn people wrongly. And I say we really loosely because I'm about to say a name that I do not consider we. Do you guys remember Fred Phelps and Westboro Baptist? Okay, when I was... In college, I, I was studying, and I was actually in a pastoral like application lab class, and we were talking about boots on opportunities to like how do we love the church well, and in in the midst of that conversation, social media is exploding with the fact that Fred Phelps and his church are across the street at K State, marching and screaming and holding signs that say all kinds of things that I don't think represent Jesus well. And now I want to make it very clear that I do not believe that that is Christ's church. But the headlines do. You see, just because that's not our mistake doesn't mean that's not the name tag that I think that we have to wear sometimes is that we are navigating other people's stupidity but that that's a, that's a big kind of a deal sometimes when I narrow things down to something smaller is when it starts to really penetrate deep you see because I haven't been in that space but I have been in a space where I allowed gossip to overtake my conversation and what was intended to be a prayer circle then became, well, did you know this about this person? Sometimes bad things are well intended. I've been in a situation where I got lost in comparison in place of compassion. And, and, my, oper and my attempt to justify myself as a good Christian, I begin to look at those around me and wonder, well, at least I am better than that. Because sometimes it's a lot easier for me to compare myself to others than it is to compare myself to Christ, who I should be like. I found my, myself in spaces where I've been the first to speak, but the last to listen to a broken world. As they sit there and they cry out for everything that they know that they need, and if we would just listen long enough, we would understand what they need is Jesus, and we have that answer. But instead of listening, 
for the way that we should speak to them, the way to invite them into knowing a truth and a knowledge that redeems and renews, we speak first and listen last. And so they don't feel heard, they don't feel known, and we spend our time beating them with words. There's been times that I've created an exclusive culture because I want to spend time with people that I like. And so when I run into people that I don't, I hope they meet Jesus, but maybe somewhere else. I hope that they find a church body that loves them well, but I hope it's not here. I hope that they find what they need, but I hope they don't have to get it from me because heaven forbid God move through me to somebody I don't like. You see, this religious culture has created a mass exodus and a massive distrust of the church. I'm sure some of you have heard this when you speak to somebody about how they feel about prayer, how they feel about Jesus, or, or what they think about that. They, they respond, well, I'm spiritual, not religious. And it's because religion has become a word that is soured in our mouths. And we were reading a book as a staff looking at the reality of the church in this present moment. And I read something that keeps me up at night. People are fleeing the church to save their faith. It is disgusting to think that somebody has to run away from the body of Christ to find him. It is insane that they have to run away from people that profess his name and profess to be children of God. They have to flee from that to find the true Jesus, or at least that they are convinced that that is necessary. You see, sometimes a religious culture is in a Jesus culture. But the story's not done. It picks up in verse 3 and carries on. It says, Now as he, he being Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. You see, Saul encounters a glorified Christ. And, and this is why I say glorified, because Saul was traveling likely during midday to Damascus, and a light shone around him. How many of y'all, I know we haven't seen the sun in a hot minute here in Kansas, but how many of you remember what midday sun looks and feels like? It is bright, it is hot, and in the midst of that, even brighter light is shining around him because Christ is present. I think I would have fallen on my butt too. And then he cries out, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? And what an idiotic response. Who are you, Lord? The guy that was an expert in the Torah, a a master scholar of the Old Testament scriptures, hears the voice of God and said, who this? Are you kidding me? If, If you know about God, okay, if you know God, you should know his voice. I want you to think right now of somebody that you spend time with daily. Now imagine if they walked into the room behind you and, and called you by name. Do you have to look to know who that is? Hmm. Who are you, Lord? I feel like you should know the answer to that question. And then he loses his sight. He is blind for three days, which to me, I think, says that he no longer has the ability to rely on himself. Have you guys ever walked through a space in the dark that you don't walk through all the time? You're stumbling all over the place. You have to rely on what you can feel on the wall. You feel helpless. There are times in my life where I have been at the end of myself. I have nothing more to give. I have nothing more to grasp onto. Have you ever been there? Sometimes I think when we are at the end of ourselves is when we finally have room for Jesus to step in. You see, because I am so good, so good at relying on myself alone all the time because I am convinced that if I can do it, I should do it and I should do it by myself because I am a DIY kind of guy. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is when I run out of me, I run into a space where I desperately need Jesus. And when I desperately need the God of the universe, that is a beautiful space. Because he can do things that I can't do. And so if I'm trying to DIY myself into something that only D-O-G-O-D can do, I almost spelled dog. That would have been weird. (laughs) He loses his sight for three days. And, And then he continues on his way to Damascus where he's led by his hand. And then he does not eat or drink for three days. And, and he prays and he fasts. You see, I think that God has been chasing Saul for a long time. And this is why I think that, because this isn't the first time we see this guy. You see, we see Saul just a chapter before when, when Stephen, the, the first martyr, is about to be stoned and he's giving one of the most beautiful sermons I have ever read. He, he, Stephen takes the Old Testament and he pieces everything together, connecting the dots, going, Sanhedrin, like religious leaders, you Jewish people, don't you get who this guy is? He's been here the whole time. And the whole time that's happening, Saul's standing on the sidelines. And then when they make the decision to stone him, Saul's sitting there nodding his head in approval and holding cloaks so they can, I guess, throw a little harder. You see, this isn't the first time that Saul has run into the gospel. And and that's excluding the fact that he's been reading the Old Testament like most of his life. 
taking those things supposedly to heart, memorizing them, placing them in his mind, doing all the things that a religious person should do that ideally would point you to who God is. That's what the Bible is designed to do. This is a story of who God is, how much he loves his people, and how he's supposed to be bringing those two things back together. And Saul was reading that daily and didn't get it. You see, he had been pursuing Saul for so long and then he finally catches him on the road to Damascus and shows him, this is who I am. Don't you get it? Saul's confronted with the fact that he doesn't know nearly as much as what he thinks he does. He can't see anything. And then he spends three days fasting and praying, removing the power of flesh so something spiritual and beautiful can take place. And then we pick up in verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. He drew the short straw. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind, bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show you how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, God had been pursuing Saul in so many different ways, trying to get through his thick head down to what should be a soft heart. And he was blind and ignorant to all of it, doing everything he could do to throw something, some kind of stumbling block in the way so he could hang on to the God that he thought he knew. And then Ananias comes in. And Ananias gives Saul a new relationship with the church, the true bride of Christ. And Ananias obediently displayed not only the message, but the character of Christ to Saul. Let, let me zero in on, on something here real quick. Can you imagine being in Ananias' shoes, being told, this guy, you know him, I want you to go and pray for him. And then the whole way walking, wondering in your head, I know what he has done. I know what he has done to people that I might even know, people that I might love, and still continuing to walk into that room, laying your hand on him and saying, brother Saul, I'm gonna be real with you guys. That is one of my deepest fears this is one of my deepest fears, that God would ask me to do something 
for someone who had hurt those nearest to me. But Ananias walks in the room and he doesn't say, hey, idiot, get up. He doesn't walk in and say, Saul. He says, brother. You see, he walks in and before Saul said anything, before Saul did anything, in that defenseless moments when he could have taken advantage of an opportunity to make things right in his own way, he offers belonging to Saul. He offers an open door to not a religious culture, but a Jesus culture. He offers him a way into the way before Saul had done anything to earn it. Saul had done nothing to become Paul. And Ananias says, brother Saul. You see, Ananias played a key part in making an adversary of the kingdom into a chosen instrument. And I, I think that's something that we need to cling to. Because I think as Christians, we do a really good job of, of doing one of two things. We either take all of the credit or none of the credit. We either take all of the credit of like, man, I talked to this person the other day and I revealed Christ to them in a way and I bet I changed their life. Or... God moves through us and we dismiss it all. And we say, I didn't, I didn't do anything. And the truth of the matter is, is that I think both of those are incorrect. Because God is the one that moves, but he has chosen a vessel. And that is our role. You see, and I'm, I'm going to say something dangerous, and I thought and prayed a lot about it, and I think that, and I believe that it's true. God needs the church, and I really hesitate to tell the God of the universe what he needs, but this is why I believe it, because he has chosen to accomplish his mission for all of creation through the church. And so because he has chosen us, he needs us. And so when we remove ourselves from the equation, his work is left unfinished. And God desires to finish what he begins. And I cannot imagine reading this scripture to you if Ananias wasn't a part of it. Because my, my desire in, in preaching this sermon was for us to focus on Saul. And I was like, man, should we stop? No, you cannot remove Ananias from the story of Saul to Paul because he played an irreplaceable part. And, and don't get me wrong, Jesus is the star. When we think of what happens, G Christ meets him on the road to Damascus and that is the pinnacle moment, the encountering of Christ that shifts everything. But Ananias had to play his role. He had to obediently be the vessel that poured out the character of Christ again. And so as I look at all of this, if I look at, at Saul's life and, and the things that have taken place and the, the people that played key roles in it, I wonder, what on earth should we do with this? I think that we should build a relationship more than we build a routine. I think we need a relationship with Christ, not a regiment of disciplines that we do without thought. Don't get me wrong, I love spiritual disciplines. Because if we do them with intentionality, if we do things on purpose for God, with God, in the power of God, it's beautiful. But when we do them just to do them, 
I think we are creating a religious culture, not a Jesus culture. We need a relationship with him. I don't want to just know about God. I want to know him so that when he says my name, I don't have to ask, who this? I think that we need to know God in our heart, not just in our mind. Sometimes this, this trajectory right here is so hard because we love things up here. When we can rationalize them, when we can get them stuck in logic, we don't have to feel things. And sometimes feelings are difficult. Sometimes feelings pull us down to a pit. But even Joseph was in a pit, but that wasn't the end of his story. You see, sometimes God desires us to be there so he can create something new when he leads us out of it. God wants us to allow full access to him. He spent such incredible time pursuing Saul and removing barriers left and right so that he could speak clearly without interruption. And after three days of blindness, fasting, and prayer, finally we get through to this guy. And so my advice to you remove barriers allow God full access before you're blind or wait up to you I guess but I also think that God wants us to put on the character of Christ the New Testament talks about clothing ourselves in Christ because I think sometimes the best gospel message that we can share is the way in which we treat people. Sometimes the gospel pours out of our bodies much better than it pours out of our mouths. And so if we could live within the character of Christ, how would the church be viewed differently? You see, God wants us to know him. God wants us to love him. God wants us to serve him. God wants us to reflect his image in his likeness. And God wants a relationship with you because you are a chosen instrument. But I know that there are things that stand in the way. I know that there are things that constantly insert themselves in the way. Because I think... A lot of times what the church does wrong is we do bad things with good intentions. I'm not saying that your intentions are bad. I'm not saying that my intentions are bad. I'm just saying that sometimes that gets twisted because of the things that we experience in our life that stand in the way. And so I, I don't know what's standing in your way today. Maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's something that you've encountered in your life that has made a dramatic impact on the way that you live life because you almost feel the need to live in a survival state and you're missing a piece of who God is because he hasn't healed that in you yet. Or maybe you're in a space of woundedness where this isn't an old scar, but this is a present wound and you feel defensive. Where you we don't feel like you can trust God. I can understand that. I got trust issues. I get it. Or maybe you're in a space where you're just so new to this that you don't really fully understand who God is to begin with, and that's okay. Because I would far rather you be walking through the open door and just be getting started than turning around and walking back out. You see, I think God wants us to be his chosen instrument. I think he wants to do something amazing in you. I think he's been pursuing you for longer than you are fully aware. And I think when he catches you on the road to Damascus and he says, here I am, 
something beautiful is going to happen. And I don't think you can ask, dream, imagine, fathom what that is. And that's the beautiful, scary thing about it. It's because his plans for you are bigger than yours. And so I, I want you to consider where you are at, but I also want you to consider who do you think Jesus is? I was listening to a song not too long ago from Benjamin William Hastings, and it's entitled The, the Jesus I Know. And, and he's writing about this back and forth of, of the contemporary church and who they think Jesus is. And this, he talks about where the church is at, the beautiful yet broken bride. And who do we really think God is? And one of the key lines of the whole song is, sometimes the Jesus I see seems so far from the Jesus I know. You see, sometimes the Jesus that we see on our road to Damascus is so far from who we've made him to be in our lives. And the ugly truth is, if you have created a Jesus that fits you, you have created an idol. Because God is who he is. And I promise that that is the God that is best for you. Because he desires a relationship with you. He desires a truth, a redemption, a recreation for your life that you can't imagine. And so I want, I want you guys to close your eyes with me for a second. And I, I want you to picture Jesus in your mind. And I want, I want to ask you, what does God look like? I want you to think of, of his hair, how does it fall? I want you to think of the expression on his face. Is he scowling? Is he smiling? Is there softness in his eyes? I want you to think about the, the complexion or maybe even just the wrinkles in his face. What does, good, what, what does God look like to you? And now I want you to imagine if he called out your name, what does his voice sound like? Is he stern when he addresses you? Is he calling you home? Is his voice higher and, and gentle or is it lower and, and maybe a little bit more stern? Does he speak with authority? What does his voice sound like? And now I want you to imagine if, if you go to him and you sit with him, what does it feel like to sit with him? Does it feel like you're awkward and, and you're in a space that you don't feel like you belong? Do you feel maybe unworthy do you feel like an inconvenience to be taking his time? Do you feel like you have finally gotten home to someone who's willing to listen to all that is on your heart? Now I want you to open your eyes. You see, when Paul 
met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He understood the Father fully. He encountered the Son, and he was empowered by the Spirit. Something changed in him in a beautiful way. And that's not the end of the story. Verse 18 And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. You see, just like Paul, you are chosen and included and renewed and redeemed and needed and entreated and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do more than you can ever ask or imagine. And so what I have to tell you today is that God has chosen you as a chosen instrument. You are who he desires to be with, and you are who he desires to do things through. And so what I can tell you is that you may not be worthy, but because of the God of the universe, because of the way that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected in the work of the cross, he desires and can have relationship with you. The Lord of the lords, the King of kings, is not outside of your reach because he has stooped down to where you are at, and he is picking you up. And he is taking the broken body of this bride and he is making her beautiful again. And because of him, the only one who is worthy of praise, we can be chosen instruments. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I pray that you would bring your spirit down on us today, that there would be a baptism in the spirit, that we would move within your power and your power alone to redeem the bride, that we would correct, correct the culture's perspective on the church. Father, I pray that you would rebuke the church that is not of you, those that know about you but don't know you, the Saul's, I pray that you would rebuke them to correct them, that you would set them on the narrow path to seek you and find you. And God, I pray wherever we are at in our journey that you would meet us on the road, that you would display yourself to us in a way that we would know it is you and no one else, and that when we would cry out to you, you would scoop us up and set us on a path to do something amazing with you and that you wouldn't leave us in that. I think the most beautiful thing about this is this encounter for Saul wasn't the only encounter he had with you. Every journey he took, every, every letter he wrote, every prayer he prayed, every testimony he shared, you were right there with him. And so God, I thank you that you are the only one worthy of praise and I pray that as your bride, we would reflect your image, your character, and your likeness. And today we offer you praise. Amen.